Hi, Hot Wash listeners. Today on Hot Wash, we're joined by Mike Irwin. He's the founder of Team Red, White, and Blue. He's the author of two books on leadership. He's leading other nonprofits and groups that hopefully he can get into here because I can't remember them all. Uh, and we're excited to talk to him. John Sorensen, our host, how are you today? I'm good. Uh, enjoying the, the last days of summer. The hot last days of summer. That's right. Uh, Mike Irwin, you're talking to us today from North Carolina. I understand that you live on what you call a homestead. Is that where you're piping in from today? It is about an hour south of Raleigh. Uh, the quick story of this is that four years ago, I lived in the, in the quaint, quiet village of Pinehurst and was getting a little bit restless uh, and in search of a little bit more adversity day to day, but really the chance for work ethic. Yeah. I, you know, especially for my for my kids, and so we started looking for a little bit of land, maybe maybe five acres, and we had this amazing opportunity that came up to be able to buy thirty two acres. And so uh, I'm a bit of a light switch; I'm either on or I'm off. There's sort of no like toggle there. And uh, ever since moving out here, we've been full throttle on. Started with chickens; that that's the gateway drug, as as anyone will tell you who gets into farming. Uh, but then we got ducks, goats, pigs, uh, beef cattle, a couple. And then the biggest one, by far the most time-consuming, is we have two dairy cows. And so you have to milk them every single day. That's how it goes, whether you feel like it or not. And uh, that's been a big learning curve. But bottom line, yes. So living here with 32 acres and uh, got a, a, as I like to say, we've got a little of a lot of different things. He's got a lot of work to do. But as I understand it, you've got about a fire team plus of uh, young workers who support you on that homestead. Five kids. Okay. And that's, you know, it became much more knowledgeable to me over time. I remember the joke used to be like, oh, the reason why you used to have a lot of kids was to do the work around the farm, you know, and uh, that's absolutely true. Uh, For sure. There's a lot of work that needs to get done and uh, they help out and they do a lot of it. And as they get older and older, they're able to do more and more. Pretty cool. He's learning the, you're learning the lessons of my Nebraska ancestors of having many kids to keep the thing running. But today we want to talk about you first. We also want to talk about the book, Leadership is a Relationship, How to Put People First in the Digital World, a timely subject matter. I'm sure you've heard it many times since you published this book nearly two years ago. You talked to me about it three years ago when we were working together on something. Uh, but I want to start with you, Mike. You commissioned out of the United States Military Academy in 2002. It's a fascinating time because the the military academy you entered was not the same military academy you left. Tell us about entering West Point in the late 90s. Yeah. So the craziest place I thought I might go when I was getting recruited to go there and was looking to become a cadet was maybe Bosnia, uh, Mm -hmm. South Korea. And so it was a very different frame of mind when you were thinking about going to a service academy or going into the military. And so it was at the start of my senior year, my first year, I think classes had just begun like that week or they were getting ready to begin. Um, uh, You know, when I was down in New York City for what we call ring weekend, and I was there in like lower Manhattan, like basically two weeks before 9-11. And uh, I'll never forget that. And then it goes on, you know, and 9-11, of course, takes place. It's one of the first weeks of the school year. And everyone's all, you're supposed to be ramping up, getting ready for senior year and celebrating and and all that. Yes, there's still a lot of work to be done before you graduate, but you know you kind of have made it by that point through three plus years. And uh, obviously, things got really serious really quickly. 
um, not only because of what happened, but it was right down the river. You know, 45 miles down the Hudson mm-hmm. River is where some of the attacks took place. The Pentagon, we had a lot of people who were at West Point whose parents were assigned to the Pentagon, right? So there was a lot of that, that nervous energy that immediately uh, set foot, you know, onto our campus. And so, yeah, it, that whole year became this just blur of what was going on and we getting ready to graduate and people telling us we're going to war and then the war in Afghanistan kicks off and then people telling us, hey, like Iraq is going to be in the future, just get ready. And so, yeah, it, it was a drastic, I'm not gonna say it was a 180, but you know, it was definitely about a probably 120 degree difference from going in there thinking that, hey, I'm going to serve my time in the military and, you know, I'll train some soldiers and, you know, learn how to jump out of airplanes and, and then probably move on with my life, do my five years of service and then move on. And that changed drastically. Um, you know, I ended up going on to serve 13 years on active duty. And, you know, so much of my 20s was just focused on Iraq and Afghanistan, the insurgencies there and how to be the best intelligence officer I could be. Yeah, the through line for you seems to be passion and service. And that carries forward from you out of West Point into the Army and then into your, your work as a, a leader of Team Red, White and Blue in your writing. But I remember this book, uh, Absolutely American, Rolling Stone writer named David Lipsky wrote this book that I picked up in probably 04 when I was looking into going to West Point or Annapolis. And one of the subjects of that book is he follows a class. I don't know if it's the class of 2001 or 2002. My class. But when these guys, it was your class. Yeah, okay. Exactly. Okay. Uh, but I remember he says uh, this, the, the topic on the student's mind or the cadet's mind was, we don't know who our enemy is. We yeah. don't know what we're going to be doing. It's so vague. Yeah. When they started, by the yep. time they finished, they had a mission. Yep. True for you? Yeah, you know, I think so. You, you know, the, um, you know, when, when you think about this, like this, this phrase VUCA comes to my mind, right? Volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous. And you think about just, you know, because I think about this a lot all the way to today right now. Some people are very comfortable with chaos and very comfortable with like the unpredictability of the world. And artificial mm-hmm. intelligence changing, and back then it was understanding what was going on in Afghanistan, and there that wasn't just like the Taliban fight. There was also the government, and how do we shape that? And what is the CIA doing? And right, uh, and then in Iraq, of course, like you know, we thought we we're going to go in there and steamroll them, and everyone was going to welcome us with open arms. Like looking back, you know, twenty years later, I'm like, how did we think that? Right, but I kind of thought that. I'll admit, you know. Um, and so I think that for me, like a lot of it, bringing it back to, to very much the application of now is like uh, the military really taught me to be comfortable with that chaos. Uh, and, and whether it's here in my life on my homestead, you know, or it's leading Team Red, White, and Blue through COVID and, and all that, when things are just volatile and uncertain, uh, I just find it to be a place where I don't want to say like I'm at peace, but I'm totally like, hey, this is, this is what it is. This, you know, and I think that a lot of people um, have gotten better at that over time, but I think that a lot of people really still struggle innately with the uncertainty and the the lack of definition or who is the enemy or what is the mission. Um, but yeah, that was certainly you know, the case for me, true, as I was merging out of West Point and then going into my, you know, my first couple of deployments. And so you commissioned as an intelligence officer in May of 2002. You're headed off to the wars. Ultimately, I've read three combat tours with the 1st CAV and 3rd Special Forces Group. At some point, you leave active duty and you embark on a new challenge. I want to follow this chronologically, Mike. Yep. What's that like for you, leaving active duty and starting something new? Yeah, so, so for me, uh, I went to grad school after my, my seven years of active duty, really focusing as, as a, cap, a young lieutenant and a captain. The Army says, all right, 
slow down, go to grad school. They sent me to the University of Michigan. Essentially, I was a civilian basically for 22 months. I had minimal military requirements. I was you know, in a, an institution of higher learning, and that was my job. Um, I went and then taught at West Point. And then I did my final year on active duty as uh, an intelligence planner down at Special Operations Command. 2015, so eight years ago, make the decision to transition from active duty to the reserves. So technically, I'm still in the reserves. You know, like uh, it's obviously just such a drastically different experience than being on active duty, where it's your day to day. Um, so eight years ago, transitioned and really retired from you know from active duty. Um, yeah, it was you know because of my work with Team Red, White, and Blue, I knew how big of a transition it, it would be. It, not just the sense of identity and the camaraderie and the relationships you build with people in the military, but that sense of purpose of, hey, I'm part of something that matters and that is meaningful, uh, but also just the, the day-to-day of the work you do. You know, I, being an intelligence officer, you're doing a lot of reading, you're in a lot of meetings, you're doing a lot of PowerPoints, you're doing, you know, when you're deployed, it's a little bit different, right? You're, you're doing predictive analysis, you're doing commander's updates brief, battle update briefs. But back in Garrison, like, you know, you're doing a lot of desk work. And for me, uh, moving on to, to create in that year, uh, the Positivity Project, uh, to continue pouring into Team Red, White, and Blue, I mean, it was just drastically different because I was so much more like out there, uh, setting a strategy, setting a vision, uh, you know, and mapping that strategy onto the vision that it was almost hard to describe how different that is than day-to-day life in the military where you're basically stepping in and you're running and you're keeping the ship running, right? You're keeping the machine running uh, that you've been handed over. You know, very rarely do you get told, hey, stand up this whole new unit and go do it. <laughs> like <laughs> the difference between the military of like, hey, here's your billet, here's your job, here's your job description, ultimate clarity compared to now go and take this organization, this idea, the positivity project of empowering America's youth to build positive relationships. Take Team Red, White, and you know, Blue as the chairman of the board at the time from you know, this organization with like, you know, eight or nine staff and grow it so that you can be a permanent fixture in the military and veteran community. That's very, very different just day-to-day work than the military. So for me, that made it challenging, but also, again, going back to my point a little while ago, made it fun for me. Like I I wake up every day, still to this day right now, on fire for the work that I get to do because it's meaningful and I get to do it with a lot of great people. And so I'll rewind a little bit before the positivity project launches, I guess before you've even transitioned from active service, Yep. you launch team red, white, and blue. And all of our listeners or nearly all of them will be familiar with the Eagle logo. Yep. I see it on the highway, little signs. When I drive to work, I see it in Starbucks. Yep. I see people wearing the shirt, working out together. It's really caught wind. Uh, there were a number of yep. these organizations that launched 10 plus years ago, but yours really uh, has stuck with us to enrich veterans' lives is the mission. We share an ethos, a set of guiding beliefs and ideals that characterize our community. Talk to us a little about launching Team Red, White, and Blue. So as you said, like uh, backpacking just a little bit. So it was 2009 after my third rotation. I show up in Afghan- uh, back from Afghanistan and I go uh, to grad school. And I'm there at the University of Michigan. You know, and I, the truth is, I felt like a little bit of a fish out of water. You know, I was there, you know, very few military, very few veterans there. And, and so there's a bit of a, a little uh, like restlessness within me. And remind me, I was coming out of like seven days a week, 18 hour, 17, 18 hour work days. Like I, as an intelligence officer, like, at least if you're doing your job, like, 
it should sit heavy on you that there are green berets or you know people in the infantry or in the skies or whatever out there going out there to risk their lives if you're not doing everything in your power to do your best to equip them with the latest understanding of the enemy or what could go wrong. And so like my motor was like operating at like, you know, I don't know the analogy here, the pistons or whatever, but if you're driving a car at 130 miles an hour, I was driving fast, right? Because of of how much work was, you know, needed to be done. Cause I was for the intelligence officer for the entire special operations task force in southern and western Afghanistan, basically half the country. So there was never wow. a lack of, oh geez, like, you know, I don't need to see that report. There was everything from Iranian <laughs> Iranian influence and Pakistani influence and what's happening in the madrasas. And what's going on in the Helmand River Valley and what's going on in Kandahar City and up in the mountains? Of, there was always so much going on to study. So I was like burning hot, right, as I came into grad school. And I really needed an outlet, you know, selfishly to, to be able to do that. And, and it was really the first time since I went to West Point in 1998 where it wasn't all service oriented. You know, you hear so much when you're at the academy, when you're in the military, this is servant leadership. You are here to work, you know, to serve the nation. You are a servant of the people. And now I'm at grad school. I was like, dude, you're here to like get some knowledge, right? To understand psychology for you. You know, you're here to understand leadership better, positive psychology, uh, post-traumatic growth, like study that, learn it. And so for me, it was a natural thing where I needed to take this new knowledge that I was gaining and soaking up and be able to not just, uh, connect neurons in my brain, but then to actually put it to work. And so that's why I created Team Red, White, and Blue, because it was a, a sense of like, what can I do with all this knowledge that I'm gaining? This is awesome, but I need to do something with it, right? And so I had a meeting at the VA hospital, the Ann Arbor VA, and uh, met with a woman named Jennifer Lohr there. She was a social worker. And I kind of, I just asked her, I said, hey, if we were big into, I got a lot of veterans who like to run and, and, and we were to raise money for a cause, like to help support veterans, what would be the big need? Well, initially, it was around the human connection. And she's like, look, a lot of veterans are just sitting on their couch playing video games and isolating and you know, drinking and self-medicating and all that because like, they don't feel like they can function out in society. So she's like, help getting them off the couch. That was the initial volley. The initial idea of RDBB was, we're going to have all these people over here running and raising money and awareness. And then we're going to help these veterans over here who were struggling. Well, over time, it didn't take very long. You know, uh, a Navy SEAL uh, out on the West Coast by the name of Joe Molina, who I deployed with, um, basically was like, hey, I want to start a chapter out here in San Diego. And I'm like, uh, like, I don't know what that really means. Like, yeah, want to start a chapter. He, I mean, he goes, yeah, we're starting to organize. And I'm starting to get a lot of people around here interested in physical fitness. And what we started to see was that actually a, a lot of veterans did not want to be like, oh, hey, help me out. I'm struggling. I need help. But a lot of veterans were like, hey, when I go run or I get off that, you know, that CrossFit workout or that hike or that ruck or whatever, man, I feel good. I feel alive. And, and we started to realize that that's what the organization's purpose should become. So it didn't take long, 18 months maybe. And we started to realize that our job is not to build one team over here that raises money and awareness and then, hey, we're going to help these veterans over here. But no, we want to help everybody. We want to bring them together through physical activity reminding veterans of their time in the military that going out and exercising and working out and especially together is, is a, sometimes a, is all the therapy you need, right? It's mm. all the, all that you need to get through the ups and the downs of life in the day, you know, the relationships and, and, and the physical activity doing hard things together. So 
that's where we started to evolve. And that's where we are today. All these years later, right? We are really focused on forging the leading health and wellness community for veterans and messaging to the military and veteran community that, hey, uh, you might not have liked exercising when you were in the military. I get it. Early wake-ups, doing a bunch of exercises that you thought were dumb. Um, but don't throw the baby out in the bathwater. You need to find that thing that you're interested in in terms of an exercise right now, whether it's rowing, rock climbing, hiking, running, swimming. Like there's a whole, there's a million things out there you can choose from, but find your thing and, and tap into the power that you get from doing that thing. 15 years later, how many people do you touch with Team Red, White, so and Blue? We, not uh, even? Our, you know, we've had about 280,000 people have joined the team since our beginning. Um, you know, in the early days, we didn't have the very good technological systems, uh, you know, to be able to capture their data and all that. So, you know, we're really at about 175,000 authenticated members, right, where we can confirm and, and know that, hey, their email address, their mailing address, things like that. You know, like any organization, like we're, you know, trying to find that balance, especially coming out of COVID. You know, we know it only takes about three weeks to, to create good habits or bad habits. A lot of people built bad habits during, you know, COVID of separating from people and not being in person and thinking that that's okay. Um, look, this is great to do things like this virtually. Um, but like once in a while, like you got to make sure that you get out there and mix it up with people in real life and in person. And that also goes for physical fitness. I did a, a 45 minute, you know, climb on the Jacob's ladder before this. Um, <laughs> you know, that's great that I do that on my own six days a week. But one of those days of the week, I got to get out there and mix it up with other people. You know, because there's, it just hits different when you exercise with other people than on your own. And so, uh, yeah, so we're, we're continuing to message to as many of those 175,000 as possible that like we need you, you need uh, for your own good as well to get out there with other people to put in the sweat. And we can, we can uh, confirm for our listeners that Mike is indeed wearing an Eagle logo team rwb shirt and he looks sweaty he, i think he definitely has worked out so we'll take him at his yeah, word i cooled down i had to, I, I, I didn't know if this was a video interview so i i finished up early enough to like stop sweating like my shirt was completely drenched and i, and I did change but yeah so I'm, I'm still glistening you are and we'll get we're still working toward leadership as a relationship how do you put people mm -hmm. first in a digital world but i want to start at the first book yeah. which came out of your time in Michigan where you collaborated with Judge Ray Kethledge from Michigan yep. uh, on uh, lead yourself first. There's kind of an interesting juxtaposition between the solitude and the relational aspects. How did you start with solitude or why did you start with solitude? Yeah, great, great question. So in my 2010, I read an article. Uh, it was actually a speech given at West Point by a guy named Bill Dershowitz. And you know, he talked about the power of solitude, but really he talked about the power of nonconformity and having courage to stand up. Um, but he, you know, he talked about solitude. So I actually reached out to the guy and I said, because I shared this with a bunch of friends and a bunch of people and people were deeply inspired by this talk. And I don't, and I don't even know what it was about the exact, it was in a certain time of, of the, of, you know, uh, maybe Iraq and Afghanistan, but it was like two, it was 2010 and people were on fire for this talk. And so I reached out and I said, Hey, Bill, uh, I know you don't know me, but like, this is a powerful message, a powerful talk that you gave at West Point. He was a professor at Yale at the time. I was like, I think you should really write a book on this. And uh, he kind of got back to me and said, hey, really appreciate you know, the, the kind words and the praise, but like, I'm not like a leadership author. Um, I talked about this because I was at West Point. So, so if you, if you want to read that book, then, then I think you got to write it. And so 
Yeah. Uh, so I started kind of just chipping away at it. And we took this like first, it was like, like going to be like an anthology approach. I was going to, I had like, you know, I recruited like 15 veterans to write a story about solitude in their own life. And, and editors were kind of like, eh, like dude, people kind of don't do the anthology approach, like in a book, it's got to be, you know, one voice and all that. And so my brother-in-law was clerking for, for judge Ray Kethledge, who, you know, was one of the youngest federal, uh, you know, um, you know, appellate judges in, in the country at the time. And we met up and we talked about this article and he was also pumped up about it. And so I don't even know how, like, but like we came to the conclusion of, Hey, let's work on this together. I barely knew Ray, you know, uh, other than he was a stud, you know? And, um, and so that began the journey of uh, working on this book where we, it was really more about leadership than about solitude. And so we profiled people like Eisenhower and Martin Luther King Jr. and Winston Churchill and Pope John Paul II and some of these like iconic leaders, especially of the 1900s and how they tapped into the power of solitude. But also Ulysses S. Grant and Abraham Lincoln in the Civil War and T.E. Lawrence and Dane Goodall. And like, you know, so we profile a bunch of different people who are like historically, you know, not like indisputably like flawless, right? But they were, you know, they were big players in, in the leadership place and space. And the idea was if we could convince people that stepping back from the noise and getting inside your own head worked for them in some of their biggest moments, then it can work for you today. Uh, and really at the core, John, as you know, is that it's, it, as we all know, it's never been more difficult than it is today to be able to separate ourselves from all the noise of the world, whether it's our phone and text messages or people calling us or you know, all the various social media platforms or the emails or the text messages. There's just so many ways that we are accessible and, and really the key point is that like all those things that swirl around us, like the analogy we use is like, they're like gnats, like just like, you know, and you're like swatting them away to try to focus. And you're like, damn, I cannot focus with all this distraction and these like ankle biting, annoying little gnats that, you know, that swirl around me. And the point is like to do deep, inspired leadership caliber thinking, you need to separate yourself from all that noise and all the gnats. Right. And get inside your own head, but more importantly, get in touch with your soul. Right. And know what decisions you're supposed to make. And that's really like the premise of the book. And so it's a very story, not lectury kind of book. Like it's a story based approach of telling powerful stories that hopefully inspire the reader to prioritize solitude in their own life. Yeah. I remember this connected for Judge Kethledge in part because he, he said when he would go to a cabin, I think that he mm -hmm. kept in the woods. And focus on facts and law of a case before him in writing an opinion, he felt like his IQ went up many yeah. points yeah. over <laughs> what it was in the office setting. Yeah. Totally. And so that hit that hit him directly. And that that stuck with me. But I'm seeing two poles here. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, there's the benefit of solitude, the ability to access deep thinking and concentration. Yep. On the other is the affection and the comradeship of a group, mm -hmm. such as a group workout. In between that, there's noise, there's gnats, all these different phrases we use, but they might be related to yeah. the subtitle of this book, Technology, the Digital yeah. World. Mm -hmm. How did this new idea come for you and did it happen during the pandemic? Yeah, so great question. So Because that is the number one question I get from people who look at the titles of the two books that I've co-authored, right? Lead Yourself First, yeah, it focuses on solitude and leadership as a relationship. <laughs> like, wait a minute. like. Uh, you know, so I tell people frequently that the purpose of life and of leadership is not to live in solitude. Like this is not the purpose of it. Like we are built for community. Life is a team sport. 
anything worthwhile that you're going to do, you need other people to do. Just think about it. Like there's just so many things you literally can't do on your own. And especially living on a farm, like things that are heavy, things that need to get done. Like you need multiple people, someone to open the gate while the cow comes out. Like, you know, life is a team sport. Well, leadership uh, is absolutely about other people. Servant leadership at the core, in my view, it really is the only way to think about leadership. When, yeah, when, when you make it about the leader or the leader makes it about him or herself and like, and that it's all about what I'm doing, like that's deeply problematic. And that arguably is not really leadership. And so for, for me, the purpose of solitude that we talk about is, is to gain the clarity about the decisions you need to make, about what needs to happen so that you can then go out there and carry those out with clarity and conviction. And that's actually like when I inscribe the book, Lead Yourself First. It's clarity times conviction equals leadership, right? Because ultimately, really what it boils down to is it is about how you lead other people. It is about what you do with the team. As you just use that word, you know, fellowship or you know, camaraderie, the cohesion of the team. How do you get people to sacrifice some of their own personal individual goals for the greater good of the team? I, I actually just played golf recently with the head coach of the Carolina Hurricanes, uh, Rod Brindamore. And you talk about this, like, hey, I, when guys are compensated based upon whether they score 30 goals or 20 goals, like, how do you get the guy who scores 30 goals to want to, want to score 25 goals? Because 25 goals means that five more goals are scored because he makes one extra pass. Right. When that might mean that he might make less money. Like, how do you get people to do that? Like, that, that's leadership right there. Right. You, you're asking people to sacrifice their own individual preferences and goals for the greater collective good. And, and ultimately, our argument in the second book is that it's through building relationships. It's being able to prioritize in the digital world with all the distractions and being able to so easily be taking away from the person right in front of you, be that on a screen, on a phone call, or especially when you're in person, to be distracted by all the things. And so you don't have that meaningful connection. And so therefore, like when you want that person to make that sacrifice for the greater good, it's like, uh, no, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, or they don't come out and say it, but their actions then reflect, you know, a commitment to, no, I'm, I'm looking out really for me. Right, because if we don't, we don't build a relationship, and we don't get, tr and we don't earn trust from the people that we lead, that we coach, that we mentor, that we guide. Like, why should they want to listen to us when, when we're trying to to encourage them to think about something that might mean they, quote unquote, as an individual, quote unquote, are less successful, right? And so, so much of this boils down to like the psychology of getting people within an organization or an entity or a team to commit to to the broader goals. You know, uh, and so that's what leadership's about. And so ultimately, yes, lead yourself first, engage in solitude, reflect, think, analyze, focus, do all that stuff. But for the sake and for the purpose of now being better at how you show up with and for other people. Right. And, and I, ironically, the go back to your specific, specific question about COVID. I actually wrote a paper called Leadership as a Relationship in Psychology 808. Uh, in at the end of my first year in grad school at Michigan. So both books sort of germinated in Ann Arbor, Michigan, you know, when I was there in grad school. And like, uh, it just sat there very dormant for a long period of time. But that was the major finding of positive psychology. Relationships are huge for our, our life satisfaction and our well-being. Uh, and so that idea kind of just sat there under the surface, under the surface. After the first book came out, people said, hey, you're gonna write another book. I said, nope, 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 nope. I just, one hit wonder. Like I, I said all I got to say, because honestly, it is a little bit, like you gotta be a little bit full of yourself to write a book. I mean, like 
if you think that you're so important that you got something to tell the world, you know, like, let's be honest, you know? Uh, and I was like, eh, like, I don't think that, but then yes, during COVID, it became very clear to pick this project up. Like I was able to see that with all this physical separation and psychological separation and fear of people and all these things and masks and the inability to see people's facial expressions, that there was going to be like a real big need for this message and a, a reinvigoration within our country and the world about how we connect with and how we we lead and how we build relationships with people. And and from my view, we still got a long way to go. Like we are not back to 2019 levels in terms of the the, the sense of relationships uh, and the sense of doing things in real life like we used to. Yeah, that's a good point to pick up on. And you're out touring, you're out talking to people, you're out briefing the book to people. Uh, so you've probably got your finger really on the pulse mm-hmm. of how far we've come back or how far we haven't come back. You just said we got a long way to go to get back to 2019. I suppose yep. what uh, indicators are you seeing? Yeah, so that? I think, so a lot of this is, is sort of intuition and gut instincts based upon, you know, what I hear from people, what I see, how much relationship friction I hear about personally and professionally. Now we know during COVID, there was a lot of divisiveness that emerged, like with all the way down to within families. And do you, you know, do you get the vaccine or not? Do you, you know, do you go visit parents or not? You know, I mean, all these things that emerge cause a lot of friction and division, you know, within our personal relationships, families and close friends. Uh, but professionally, same thing. Like a lot of organizations made these decisions. We're going to go permanently remote. And now a lot of people are backpedaling that and saying, well, maybe not. Maybe we're going to do this thing called hybrid. Uh, you know, and so I think that there's a lot uh, and just go on LinkedIn and see how contentious that question is. Make you want to start like a, a mudslinging fight on LinkedIn? Just go post and say, I think that everyone should have to report to the office to work, <laughs> you know, because right. the relationships that you build with people in person cannot be replicated, you know, over Zoom. Like, oh man, right. people will come out of the woodwork that you never, you never even knew they existed, you know, you know, calling you like the devil. Um, <laughs> right. But it's like, so you see some of those data points on social media and all that. Uh, but ultimately, the data just kind of shows it. When you look at, you know, uh, you may have seen this, but a few months ago, the Surgeon General came out and basically said the data now reflects that we have an epidemic level of loneliness in America. You know, so they asked these questions. Hey, if things hit the fan and you really need to count on people, how many people in your life could you count on to drop whatever they're doing to come have your back? And the mode, the most common answer, I believe it's 28 or 29 percent is zero. Right. Almost one out of three hmm. Americans believe they have zero people in their lives who would drop what they're doing and come have their back in a crisis moment. And so when wow. we look at like just the strength of the average relationships in America, the data around that. Uh, and then you just look at things like, yes, besides Taylor Swift and like a couple other like big performers in music, right. Who like got like sold out stadiums everywhere. When you look at lots of sporting events, like they might say that they're sold out. They're not right. There's like tons of empty seats. There's a lot of people who are not coming back like to those things, like as the, the streaming world and the digital world has gotten faster and better, uh, virtual reality, like Apple, you know, Vision Pro, like all these things that are being <laughs> developed and promising a, a better virtual experience that's much less stressful than going somewhere in person. Like all of these things, John, are a part of the conversation of, like, of what shapes and influences my thinking on this, that you know, we've got a long way to go. Uh, and honestly, I'm not sure that we ever get back to, uh, you know, to those levels, like where, like where the average person in America has those relationships, you know, and, hold on, Mike, hold go, on, Mike, don't, don't, don't say we're not going to get back. Don't yeah. say we're not going to get back. Yeah. So you've touched on such a big thing. I'm sure 
CEOs across the country would love to make this case, but like you said, it's delicate. It's so yes. tough to get people back into the office. Everybody talks about it among their groups, but it's tough to make the case publicly saying yep. come back. Let's do the thing here. If, if, if Mike Irwin were to step into that C-suite on behalf of the corporate CEO across America and make the case yeah. to the workforce, to the public about why they need to come back to the office, what would you say? Yeah, I would say clearly that relationships matter to our, ha- to our happiness, to our health, to our well-being, um, you know, to our ability to, to solve problems uh, in a collaborative space that is just different when we're in the same geographical space. Uh, you know, I would, I would say all those things, you know, and so for me, this boils down to a question of, our, can we think logically and rationally about it? Or do we think emotionally? You know, this is sort of stoicism 101 stuff. Um, cause there is, there's a point to be made of like, Hey, I got a, a taste during COVID of working digitally and remotely, not having to get dressed up, not having to fight traffic. Like, there's a case, right? Just like, I don't want to go to the game and pay all that money for tickets and par- pay money to park and wait in line to park and wait in line to go to the game and pay like $18 for a beer. Like there's a logical case on, on both sides of I'd rather do it virtually and watch the game at home or work, you know, purely remotely. But I think that it's really important that we convince people that there's some sort of magic that happens in the stadium, in the arena, in the office that just doesn't happen and can't be replicated when we are, uh, you know, doing things virtually. And so like, look, I, I'm an optimist in general, but what I'm saying about this higher level, when I say that, I don't know if we'll get it back. You know, I don't know if we get, you know, the, like, as technology gets better and AI continues to expand and grow, like, I do think that, you know, the, it's gonna be really hard uh, for people to be able to uh, prioritize the relationships like they used to, because as all the distractions and the noise are out there, like, I think a lot more people like view work as being more transactional than relational now. They want to get their work done and live their life, you know, uh, in, with the autonomy that they want to live their life. And so we'll see. Uh, there's a case to be made, I think, that AI is going to make it so that uh, increasingly people will not be able to trust what they see on a computer screen or through their phone. And they will only be able to trust what they see in the flesh. So that's a, that's a case for optimism, from my view, that you might see people push for more and more in real life, in person, because that's the only place where I can really trust it as deep fakes and AI gets stronger and deeper. Um, but again, right now it's highly volatile. Going back to my point earlier about a VUCA world, I think there's a lot of like, we don't know how this is going to shake out. You know, there's no magic eight ball where anybody can tell me with complete certainty that this is what the world's going to look like in 2030. You know, there's a lot. I'll drop back to the book. Leadership is a relationship. How do you put people first in the digital world by Mike Irwin? It's seven boils down to seven chapters if I had to outline it too quickly. And they yep. cover different values in a relationship, accountability, forgiveness, resilience, trust, coalition building, loyalty, and stability. I think the maybe key to the, to the seven, though, is the one right in the middle, and you've mentioned it a couple of times in the past minute, and that's trust. Mm-hmm. What is it about trust that's so central, both literally in your book and also truthfully, so central to a relationship? Yeah. Yeah. Trust is such an interesting one. It's one of the phrases, you know, when I haven't done leadership work with companies in corporate America and the government, like, hey, how do we accelerate trust? How do we get people to trust us or trust one another faster, you know, or more, you know, more deeply? Um, You know, I think there's a difference between relational trust 
and let's just call it like transactional trust. So like I trust the pilot. I don't need to know who's flying the airplane from Raleigh, you know, to Philadelphia. Like I trust that there is a, um, you know, like the credentials and, and what they're doing, you know, to be able to get there <laughs> uh, and fly the plane safely. But that being said, like there's also like relational trust, which is like over time, I get to know the person who I'm in a relationship with, who I'm leading or who I'm working with. And that I trust that they're going to be giving their very best. Because one of the big challenges I think that we see like in relationships and in work, you know, is that we often don't know, like, is this person fully vested in the relationship in this organization? Um, And that takes time. That takes time to build. And for me, like, this is why relationships are so important. And the argument is that if you prioritize relationship, getting to know the person beyond their job description, beyond, you know, their job description, that it really helps you know, to be able to know more about their story and their background and their ups and downs. And when you do that, now, uh, you know, they're going to be in a better position and a better posture to be able to build trust with you, right? Because you know them more than just like the job description in, uh, in the job title on paper. I had a boss in the Marine Corps who once asked me how long I spent counseling a Marine on his fitness report. And I said, oh, about by 30 minutes, 45 minutes. I thought that was good. And he said, however long you spent, spend three times as long. And I only got to do it once or twice. And it was sort of grueling. But the amount of time I had to sit there with this person and pay attention uh, did something positive to my relationship. You think that goes to trust? Oh, absolutely. I mean, when you think about the importance of sitting there uh, and listening and developing empathy, like this is one of the big things that people have talked about is, hey, Mike, I, I believe you. Like, it's really important to have empathy and to be able to build trust. It's really hard to do in an all virtual environment, right? In other words, it's more effective. Like, and you can't, and uh, Sherry Turkle writes about this in a book called The Power of Talk in the Digital Age. The power of having like a communication, like in person, face to face, and actively listening to know their story. I mean, you can't replace that. Uh, and, and I think that that's like one of the, the best ways and one of the most tactical. Uh, piece of advice that, that that can give to people when you're starting to try to get to know someone and, and to build that relationship is just really lean in, ask the questions, get to know them as quickly and as deeply as you possibly can. I mean, this is what people who are trained in sales do, right? They're trained how to ask you questions and tell me this and tell me that. And right, but this is really in many ways leadership. And this is life of like, can you actually sit there and without being distracted, you know, by, you know, by the devices that we carry around, can you actually be present and hear someone's story, hear what's on their mind, hear about their past successes, failures, mistakes, the things that are the most important to them, their dreams. Like, uh, and like, this is hard. Like, I, I talk about this and I know this is important. You know, this is something I still have to remind, remind myself all the time to do. And sometimes I still struggle with it, you know, because we're human and we got a lot going on and we're so busy. But when we can slow time down and really lean in and do what you just did, we talked about, John, like, I would argue that's one of the most productive and powerful things we can do to accelerate trust. So we're talking with Mike Irwin. His latest book is Leadership is a Relationship. Okay, he's an author. He's an Army officer, a combat veteran, an executive director of a nationwide nonprofit, an entrepreneur. He's all these different things. But leader is probably the one word we could settle on to tie everything together. And so I want to do something kind of different to round this conversation out. Uh, Mike, I want to hit you with a few quotations on leadership. We have all heard 
one quotation or another that supposedly summarizes the entire concept of leadership, sometimes in a good way, sometimes in a very bad or incomplete way, at least. I want to hit you, hit you with a few and get your take. Agree or disagree? Okay. Quote, lead me, follow me, or get out of my way. Man, is, is, there, is there a way here I can kind of like agree with both sides or, you know, or you know, either? <laughs> uh, yeah, look, if, if I had to say like yes or no, I'd say yes to that. I, I think that okay. you know, when, when in charge, take charge, right? This idea of if you're in a leadership role, you know, I, I, do, I do think there's power in having that clarity you know, and saying, all right, let's go. General Patton, wherever you are, uh, yeah. Mike dutifully follows yeah. that order. Yeah. Next one. It doesn't make sense to hire smart people and then tell them what to do. We hire smart people so they can tell us what to do. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. Again, mostly agree uh, with a big caveat here of, <laughs> man, how do you hire? How do you know that you're hiring smart people, right? You know, who know the organ- <laughs> organization, but... Uh, so I would, if I had to say agree or disagree, I would say I probably more disagree with that okay. because I think that like trust, again, another question here, trust is given or, or is trust earned? Like same sort of thing. I, I think trust is earned, you know, um, in a relational way, trust can might be given to the pilot or to someone, to my doctor, you know, or whatever, you know, based upon what they've done. But in terms of this, I think that trust has to be earned, especially in the world today where you don't have a relationship and don't know the person, give me the smartest person in the room. You know, one, if you don't have the, the social skills to be able to communicate that, that's a problem. And, and sometimes you don't have all the context, you know, so I'd say more disagree than agree with that. Steve Jobs, you built an incredible no. company. Mike Irwin <laughs> disagrees with you. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> okay. Next one. Quote, modesty is often a pose or a device. Unless a leader believes in himself, he is not going to persuade others to believe in him. Yeah. Agree or disagree? So you know what's really funny about this whole content, this little game here is that like I've actually <laughs> thought of, like if I am going to work on a third book, like this is this is basically like what I think like needs to be unpacked is this idea of like we hear these things like all the time, like you no know, trust should be given, no trust must always be earned, like and we hear these two sort of polar you know sort of yeah. views, and it's like the reality right. is it's almost always in the middle, you know, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. like I think that you know for this one here. The same thing, obviously, humility matters. Like, who wants to be led by, like, a, you know, a blowhard who's like just full of, you know, him or herself and like thinks they got it all figured out? But at the same time, if you don't have enough confidence, right, in yourself, how are you supposed to inspire that in other people? You know, mm-hmm. uh, and so, like, you can be way too modest or have way too much humility, right? And that can be a problem, or you can have none of it. And that's a huge problem. So, I'd say it's a bigger problem to have no humility than it is to have way too much, you know? So, uh, if I had to again and go on that side, I would probably say slightly disagree because I think that you can still be a great leader and be really high in humility, and you can inspire confidence in people, you know, um, in other ways through your humility. We know through that quote how Richard Nixon thought about modesty, yeah. but we yeah. know also how uh, we also know a little more about Mike after his yeah. comment on that. Thank you for that. Okay. Let's do one last one. I'll skip over this Charles de Gaulle one. We already know where yeah. we stand on that probably. Here's the last quote. You manage things, you lead people. Yeah, I agree with that. Easy yeah, way. I think that, you know, obviously, you know, leadership and management, it's a, it's a fascinating debate always. Like, is that management or is that leadership? We know that we need both. Um, but, you know, I think, I think that's true. You know, that, you know, ultimately people there, and then we speak to that in leadership as relationship and in lead yourself first, both books touch on this, that leadership is really about something deeper. It involves the soul. And it's sometimes like, it's hard to really pinpoint what that is, but 
like how we inspire and how we motivate people and call the best out of them, right? That's, that's leadership. You're never going to manage your way, you know, to, to, you know, to people's hearts, you know? And so I would say, yes, I agree with that more than that. Navy Admiral, mathematician, scientist, Grace Hopper, someone people are paying a little more attention to in the past few years, a good quote from her. Yeah. This has been a great conversation today with Mike Irwin, author first of Lead Yourself First, and most recently, Leadership is a Relationship. How do you put people first in a digital world? He's the executive director of Team Red, White, and Blue, a nationwide nonprofit helping veterans get out and enrich their lives. Mike, thanks for talking with us today. It's been awesome, John. Really appreciate the conversation and the thoughtful questions. And yeah, even at the end, that's the first time I've ever had like a real good, hey, like, where do you stand on this? Like, because it does, it speaks to the complexity of that. Like, and some people like, they go all in on a particular quote and they're like, 100% agree. And it's like, there's always nuance there. But like, I love that exercise and thinking through, hey, where, where do you stand? How do you view leadership? So that, that was really fun. So I appreciate the time and the opportunity to talk leadership with you for the past hour. You got it, Mike. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. It really helps others discover the program. And let us know what you think about the podcast. Is there a topic or a guest you would like us to talk to? You can follow us on Twitter at HotWashRCD or send us an email with your comments to editors at RealClearDefense.com. In the show notes, you can find a link to sign up to receive The Morning Recon, our daily newsletter summary of defense news. For John Waters and everyone here at Real Clear Defense, I'm John Sorensen.